does that mean that you can be saved from hell? If Jesus is part of God and God is eternal outside of time, mm -hmm. does that mean that, G that some part of God is eternally wandering around available in hell as this door to heaven or from hell? Welcome to Barefoot to Emmaus. This is Char. This is Byron. Welcome back. Glad to have you here. We were so excited about our conversation on heaven and the Jesus globby body last week. If you missed that, tune in to our last episode. Yo, soteriology. That we decided, yes, to... Well, I guess that would be more like eschatology if we're thinking about the end of times as it relates to what's well, like post-eschatology because yeah. <laughs> the post-eschatological discussions uh but no we i thought we would be talking about soteriology last week and we didn't my apologies so to remind you soteriology is the study or theology of salvation yeah so this week the one and only byron is going to lead us into a little bit of his soteriology yeah which happens to be very similar to my own. So this will be fun. We should be able to go deep. Yeah. So to be fair, what we talked about last week was more of the, like, what does heaven look like or what is heaven like from Char's perspective. What I'll be talking about is less of what heaven looks like or is like specifically. Um, I do resonate significantly, Char, with your idea of, like, who the heck cares about gold streets and if it looks <laughs> like a mountain and if there's 12 gates and stuff. You know, for all I care, that is unimportant. I have—I seem to have a slightly stronger draw than you do toward noticing the, yeah, but the Bible still says that's what it is. And I think there's reasons for that. And I think all that to say, I care significantly less. I have fewer stakes in what heaven is like or looks like or whatever. Other than, I'll wrap this tiny thing up and then go to what we will be talking about, I think, which I think... Okay, so this is a thing that happens as, I think, a, a middle child um, with intelligent parents and older brothers and people, is that they sometimes say things and I'm like, did you make this up or is this <laughs> from something else? So anyway, I, I get this from my dad, but he may have gotten it from somewhere else, although I wouldn't put it past him to have made this up. Um, so the idea of like how to compare uh, or how to think about heaven, how to think about our resurrected bodies. Um, and my dad says, you look at an acorn and you don't think of the fulfillment of that acorn as a huger acorn, right? So why? Mm. Should, so we don't look at humanity, we don't look at, at a human body and imagine that, you know, imagine heaven in anything that could be fathomed from looking at this, right? Heaven will be as different from this existence as an oak tree is from an acorn. I love that. And yet everything about heaven uh, everything about that oak tree come is is able to be found in that acorn. Oof. So I think there is something about, you know, this idea of, like, whatever God created is not going to pass away, it will become fulfilled. But it will be so different as to be unrecognizable from our perspective right now. Wow. Anyway, so that's, that's like, my view of heaven. Um, it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Leave me with a lot to think about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I... I 
I literally don't have ideas further than that. We did, I don't know, we did finish watching The Good Place yesterday, and, you know, they created their own heaven afterlife moralistic system where it's like, well, I mean, they bring up good points of, like, to sit in eternity with everything you want in perfection isn't actually all that good. Now, what I think they're missing is God. <laughs> Partly God, the God element, but also the human element, that by retaining their humanness in as much as someone who can get bored, someone who perceives time as a human does on Earth, mm, all of those factors remain so, I guess you could say anthropocentric, or at least yeah. you know centered on our current understanding, that it makes sense where they would come to from that. And so yeah. I think, this is my personal take, and it sounds like you know with the acorn take as well, that when you are imagining what heaven might be like, you really have to let behind all limits, <laughs> all, all human ways of thinking yeah. as limitations. Yeah, I mean, as much as I just said this whole acorn thing, I think yes and no, right? Like, people are very fanciful about what they... There's so much myth that has gone into, or, or like oral tradition now, or whatever, that has gone into people's ideas of what heaven, or hell for that matter, are like, right? Dante's Inferno is a far cry from anything that the Bible reflects about hell. Yeah. Right? Pearly gates, right? Like that, I think there, there is a reference to like gates like pearl. Anyway, I, I don't know. Revelation is, is a lot. But, um, <laughs> you know, this idea of like angels with wings sitting on fluffy white clouds, playing harps, eating as much as you want, and getting to talk to like all the cool people who ever lived. Like that is heaven in many people's like mind's eye. Yeah. And what I question is the goodness of that, right? Obviously that is missing something. Anyway, all that, blah, 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 blah. Um, There's your slice of heaven. <laughs> that, yeah, that, that's your slice of heaven. Um, what I'm here to talk about, yeah, is, is, our is the mechanism of salvation. You tell him, Byron. So <laughs> this is crucial, right? Like this is pretty essential to Christianity. I don't, uh, is, is there something about salvation in the Nicene Creed? Right, like, the mechanisms of salvation? Does it say, like, Jesus died for our sins and one must believe that in order... Right, like, John 3.16 is all, like, it, it describes you need to believe in Jesus for life everlasting and all that stuff. But, like, what is the mechanism of salvation? Do you believe some stuff and then, you know, you're saved and is that a permanent thing? Or can it be taken away from you if you, like doubt it or disavow it like or if it's obvious that you don't believe it by your actions but like what if you want to believe it but you can't like you know if you're a super strong like scientist and you just can't wrap your head around the prospect of someone being resurrected but you really really want to you know salvation itself is a really kind of you know as crucial as it is i think it's a really kind of amorphous thing yeah I want to tie back to the sure. Nicene Creed since you brought it up. Uh, it does mention at the end uh, the forgiveness of sins the re and the resurrection of the body and the life ever after. But that doesn't say what we have to no, do. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. It's, it's all very vague. I'm looking up the Nicene Creed just because I, I know it, obviously. But So, yeah, I mean, it starts, I believe in one God who did some stuff. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ who did some stuff who was some stuff, who did more stuff, through him all things were made, for us and for our salvation, 
for our salvation. So there it is. He came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. So for our salvation was incarnated. Mm-hmm. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered death, and was buried and rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. Yeah. I guess that's the Apostles' Creed. That's a little bit more bare bones. Um, you're right. But go on. What was your point about Nicaea? Okay, all, all that to say, like, it mentions the word, like, for our salvation, he was mm-hmm. incarnated and did some stuff. What did he do? Died. I'm just trying to, like, dig out. Like, a typical evangelical belief system is you have to believe whatever that means. Like, what does that even mean to believe? Like, you feel like a thing happened? You know that a thing happened? If you know that a thing happened, then is that really belief or faith, right? This is not the direction I, I imagined going. I, I'm, well, here I'll, we are. <laughs> I'll get to apokatastasis and, like, universal reconciliation and stuff. But I think it's important to get into why these are necessary. Hmm. And I think for me, the reason of why it's necessary is because the evangelical view of salvation is cruel, harsh, terrible, and unsatisfactory. Uh, you heard it here first, folks. Um, <laughs> Pretty much sums the gums. Like, I mean, that, and that's using a really, that's saying it really strongly, but the idea that you have to, like, you know, and there's Bible verses all over the New Testament. Like, if you confess with your mouth and believe mm-hmm. with your heart, and you will be saved. But, you know, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, so that whoever believeth in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So believing has something to do with this. So I guess that makes sense. But then, obviously, there's, like, and, and Jesus says, like, oh, not one who is bound. Wow, I really need to read my Bible more. Um, not one who is bound... Uh, you know, will be lost. Except for Judas, it says, which I think is BS, but that's that's a whole What are you quoting thing. right now? Uh, Jesus says some stuff, like, thanks God for the people you gave me, you know, none of them will be lost. Paul says some things that I think uh, Calvin picks up on, of like, it is impossible for one of these to be, like, removed. I don't know. This is this is what I this is why I'm saying like I need to read my Bible more or I need to like memorize these verses, I guess. Like there's Bible verses that indicate all sorts of things in various directions, right? So like if I quote a bunch of Bible verses that indicate universalism, then there's also verses that someone could quote that indicate not universalism. So like this is why knowing the Bible is really really crucial. And not just like knowing that it says it somewhere, but like being able to know it and its context and all of that. Anyway, maybe I'll just start talking about apokatastasis and universal reconciliation stuff, and then we'll get to why it's necessary. I think that'll probably happen. Yeah, probably. Do 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 you want to have some introduction to the idea before you just pop in? Because you said it twice now, apokatastasis, and I don't think that people would. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, tell us about. <laughs> Your understanding of salvation. Let's start there. Okay. So I'm going to point out that a lot of the, like, hesitancy in, like, throwing the typical, uh, you know, eternal damnation in hell, eternal reward or whatever in heaven idea under the bus and and that being like a selective thing that some people get that and some people get this 
right? Like, that is rooted biblically, right? So I'm, I'm not, like, throwing that out. I'm looking at mechanisms by which it actually reflects the character of God, but also, like, certain legitimate understandings of what the Bible actually says, not just our really far-off interpretations 2,000 years later, right? So, like, I would, I would, anyone who wants to, like, push back on some of these ideas, I would ask you to, like, question yourself and ask if your ideas actually come from something that is reflected in the Bible itself, and more than that, the character of God. Yeah, you're, you're putting quite a high uh, primacy of Scripture as being the authority. I am, I am, I, and I typically, I typically do, right? I, you know, when, when trying to figure out all my queer stuff, like, the accusation was like, oh, you're just looking for loopholes, or you're, you're looking to, like, cut bits or explain away parts of the Bible, and I certainly am not. Um, and you, as someone who's walked alongside me while I've done that, mm-hmm. can attest to that. My parents, Very true. You know, I've I, always admired that about you. I do not, like, just explain away or look for loopholes in biblical stuff. I do f- fundamentally try to, like, synthesize and figure out a way that these things all actually do work together, which itself might be kind of a foolhardy thing because these were written by different people at different times to different people. Mm-hmm. Like, what if the book of Ezekiel isn't meant to, you know, jive completely with Isaiah? You know, what if the Gospel of John isn't supposed to harmonize perfectly with Matthew? Um, mm. It's a huge question. You know, so what do we do with those, if if not tensions, then straight up, like, conflicts? Yeah. Anyway, um, so and so people, evangelicals particularly, and, and Catholics as well, are really, really stuck on this idea of, like, there needing to be, like, hell and that being some form of justice in fact like to to dig into our modern criminal justice system like which came first the chicken or the egg Mm. right this prison idea where we throw people in a dungeon because they somehow deserve it based on what they've done debatably as a form of reform or Right, like, what, what is the point of the way we punish people in our modern day? Yeah. And does our concept of hell come from that, or does our concept of that come from a weird idea of hell? You had a question? No, you just comment that, that we should bring Hini in to talk about that. Yeah, sure, <laughs> absolutely. Because did, she did a lot of research on that, but um, the carceral system in the United States certainly informed and influenced the... Uh, carceral systems around the world yeah. in, in its punitive and retributive nature. So I would say that the concept of hell originated prior to the prison system. Yeah, I mean, I... I as, would, as we understand it today. I would guess that the, the, the understanding of our prisons as somehow being a reasonable form of justice, which they're not, came from twisted understanding of justice from this idea of like damnation in hell because of something that someone did or didn't do in life anyway all that to say there's a ton in the bible that points towards hopeful universal ultimate reconciliation that's four things count hopeful because there's plenty of parts where it says god wants this right It, it it is also reasonable to assume that god wants this god wants that that we all hope for this thing to happen, that this 
this good thing to happen. For Christ did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. Uh, that's John three seventeen, and then Second uh, yeah. Peter three something among something says, "For God does not desire any soul to not be saved." Yeah. So we have a hope for this, right? Mm-hmm. It is not unchristian or un, you know, immoral in any way to hope for everyone to be saved. Both, you know, for us to hope for that and for God to hope for that. So the second one, hopeful, ultimate. Ultimate means at the end. So this is actually one interesting caveat that I make on apokatastasis, which I'll get to. Um, <laughs> um, so ultimate means... Holding the people on the edge of their seats. <laughs> yeah. Ultimate means at the end or by the end. So hopeful, ultimate. Universal, that means it is accessible to everyone, which salvation is already accessible to everyone, so that's not the contentious part. The contentious part is whether or not it is actualized, whether or not everyone is saved. And not just everyone, but everything, every single being. Um, This is where I also go a little wild. (laughs) Um, That not just every person, but also every creature, potentially every, like, tree, rock, and atom. Um, Gonna call John Muir on us? Sure. I love it. and debatably, I'm not going to die on this hill, but debatably, um, demons as well, including Lucifer. No, well, I'll go there. Um, th- I think there's a Bible verse that makes it difficult for me to go there. Um, <laughs> you know, you see, you see how tight I am to what the scriptures say. If there's a Bible verse that says like, oh, the devil can't be ever, ever, ever like <laughs> redeemed or reconciled, like I'm going to have to take that seriously and figure out what it means, how it means in the context of. Yeah. All of this stuff. The last one is reconciliation. This is where I agree very much with Char, your idea of globby body, that the, the point is unity, the point is reconciliation. Um, to each other, to ourselves, to God. So salvation, I think, is, is only salvation if it is reconciliation. Um, mm-hmm. Saved from what? Right? Saved from our sins, but to I mean, is it, is it, you know, are we saved from our sins or what are we saved from? Um, I think it's probably sin. I also want to make a distinction. uh There's a difference between a freedom from and a freedom for. Absolutely. So I think it is a freedom from sin and separation and a freedom to wholeness and unity. Yeah. Um, so we are redeemed, you know, reconciled to be consiled (laughs) to, to God. So I think that's, that, that is what I believe is hopeful, ultimate, universal reconciliation. You could call that universalism. To be fair, there's lots of types of universalism. Yeah, there are. There's really shitty types of universalism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm not saying that hell doesn't exist. In fact, apokatastasis, like, it is, apokatastasis just means universal reconciliation. Um, it's... There's a term the, it's a the Greek founding... Word. Yeah, the founding church fathers used. Yeah, church it's, parents. A, it's a Greek word that is like the full, this theology of universal salvation. Um, it's one of it's one of them. So there's all sorts of like terrible ways to do this. Two of the most common for Christians or non-Christians or like not lukewarm but like Sunday Christians. I I don't even want to say right like people with good intentions, right? Again, hopeful. It is totally reasonable to hope uh, for universalism. Mhm. Some people go about that in a way that I think is inauthentic. 
or not inauthentic, but just like not not reasonable. Anyway, so one of the ways that takes people... away accountability. Yes. Yeah, which oof, like freedom is actually the biggest like issue with this idea, so we'll get into that. Okay, so uh, one form of universalism is to say there is no hell. That, you know, hell just doesn't exist, therefore everyone goes to heaven. That it see that would be difficult to it's very difficult to make a case for that. I mean, there's the parable, and it is a parable, of Lazarus and the rich man, and the rich man is, like, in hell, and there's this weird, difficult-to-reconcile, like, verse about you can't cross from there to here, but to be fair, that's pre-crucifixion and resurrection and stuff. Anyway, but it's also still a parable. Yes, like, and, and it's important to understand that a parable is communicating a message. It's not articulating a reality in a way that... I believe, if, just to take a quick sure. second here, that Jesus in this parable, so real brief, there's this poor guy named Lazarus, there's this rich guy who just constantly ignores him, never meets any of his needs, both die, Lazarus is in heaven being held in, held in the arms of Abraham. Which is itself a significant reference to an apocryphal, uh, like, cosmological understanding of salvation that people then would have understood that we have no idea about now, unless you study it. Yeah. Okay, so bosom of Abraham. Like, so, that means something that you probably don't understand. And this rich dude, which it's interesting, the rich dude is never named. That's true. Lazarus is named, but the rich dude is not. So he's down there in the fires of Helms, like, yo, can you just pass down, like, a drop of water? Like, if Lazarus could just come down with his finger, just, you know, one little drop of water to quench my tongue from this undying thirst and anguish and fire. Yeah. And Jesus is like, he can't do it because the, there's this gap, this uncrossable gap. Mm -hmm. And the parable is being told to describe how even if this man were to come back to life and tell his other rich friends about his experience so as to transform them, they wouldn't listen to the risen dead because they're not listening to Jesus who will be the resurrected dead. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's a big, like, it's a, it's a big comment about the resurrection and people's hard hearts about that. Kind of in a Ebenezer Scrooge Christmas carol. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a little bit of that vibe. <laughs> no. Anyway, okay, so one, so, okay, so hell doesn't exist. That's one way of saying, that's one way of trying to go for universalism. Another one is saying no one actually goes to hell. Like, you know, I've heard people say, like, even Hitler is not bad enough to deserve eternal conscious torment. And I tend to agree with that. There is nothing that we can do on Earth that, like, is deserving of eternal, irredeemable torment. I mean, this type of sentiment is the base of the entire premise of The Good Place, right? That, you know, spoilers. I mean, not really. <laughs> not really, just this idea of, like, hey, actually, maybe it's unjust for people to be, like, you know, tortured forever. Anyway, okay, so uh, that, and that's kind of a combo, right? Like, no one is actually bad enough to end up in hell. There's another idea of, like, a loving God would never send anyone to hell, and the typical answer to this is, like, well, God doesn't send people to hell. You have to, like, technically choose it. Um, and that, you know, do you know what you're choosing? And this gets really interesting. Um, other forms of universalism. Um, 
Yeah, that one of like God will just choose to save everyone just cause is a form of universalism. It's not a great one. Uh, another one technically is annihilationism. So there's this ancient school of Christian thought in Rome, and they just thought anyone who wasn't a Christian or you know didn't make the cut or whatever, their soul just gets annihilated. So no pain, no nothing. No just pain, gone. no nothing. Yeah. Um, I don't know if they get that from the idea of like outer darkness or whatever. But technically, that's a form of universalism because that means any everyone is in heaven because anyone who's not in heaven doesn't exist. So that's a weird type of universalism. It's weird to even call that universalism, but it is. Um, so anyway, there were very there are varying ideas about it, but and some are more you know legit traditional biblical than others. So apocatastasis. I so, do want to say very briefly about apocatastasis is that it was a view held by many of the early church parents and it was actually in that sense not this fringe idea that was rejected immediately by most people as utter blasphemy or heresy i think by the time of early councils such ideas became unorthodox i'm not sure at what point could figure that out later but it wasn't you know until hundreds of years in yeah. when those ideas started to actually be rejected as unorthodox. By which time you also had stupid theologies like double predestination and original sin. So, you know, not everything that made it through the councils was good. Yeah. I, 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 I say that, though, because I think it's worth noting that the people who knew Jesus best or were taught by the people who knew Jesus best, yeah. not to say that every idea that they had was perfect and right, mm -hmm. um, but for people in today's modern Christian context to have such a strongly influenced soteriology from this evangelical notion yeah. of retributive justice and yeah. eternal torment, to understand that in the beginning it was not so. Very much not so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to be fair. Great clarification. So, again, the, yeah, so there's this early, early theologian who says, who who brings up this sentiment about like heaven is not complete until every single like every, every single last insect is there um that's really sweet yeah it's kind of cute you know so it's this idea that if god made something god wants it to be redeemed um that was probably someone who left the spiders outside uh, <laughs> yeah well yeah um i was gonna say a spider fact but it's unimportant <laughs> um <laughs> Spider facts with pirates. Spider facts. Okay, so blah blah blah. I'm just gonna. Okay, so how how could this be, right? I think essentially. Okay, actually, I'll start with saying how I initially thought of this idea because I I used to be you know typical card carrying evangelical, <laughs> you know, and all the normal ideas. You know, you you die and then you get judged and sucks to suck if you didn't make the cut, so to speak because then you're tortured forever in this hell thing. Okay, but then there's this verse in, I think, Second Peter or something, uh, and it's, it's referenced a couple other times, this idea of Jesus descended into hell and stayed there for three days. What did he do while he was there? I think the P Second Peter thing says he preached to the souls who were below or something, and it's, it's actually not super specific as to clarify whether or not it's and I'm, I'm sure some people have strong feelings about this but i don't think it's super specific as to whether or not it's talking about like people who had died 
or I mean even ugh, the concept of eternity right like Abraham is talked about having been saved Abraham is up there in heaven if Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham mm-hmm. so what like is salvation always working in the same there's this idea kind of in the Psalms of like those who had fallen asleep like th- this is why a concrete idea of like oh this is exactly how hell works is is arrogant and stupid because the ideas of hell like developed even over the course of the old testament this idea of like the underworld or gehenna this neutral kind of place where ecclesiastes talks about everyone going in the end yeah or just sheol a place where the sheol body rests. Is, yeah. yeah um sorry yeah it starts as sheol then it turns into gehenna and then it you know starts to pick on pick up uh babylonian morality ethics um, and even Greek turns, ideas of Hades and then stuff. it turns to Hades um, you know and, and then we get this hell idea which isn't biblical really obviously it was inspired by something biblical but that's ugh. anyway um, can I speak a little to its, its sure. origin if that's okay one of the key passages that has been used to justify this idea of eternal torment is in Matthew 25 Jesus's speaking to his uh, disciples, his apostles, and saying at the second coming of the Son of Man, so at the end of time is the judgment day, mm-hmm. I will separate you into two groups, one on my right, these are the sheep, one on my left, these are the goats. And the sheep basically did everything right. Uh, Blessed are you because when I was naked, you clothed me, when I was hungry, you fed me. It has a very social justice orientation that yeah. Jesus was with, and was the least of these, the people who were poor and starving and hungry and marginalized in society. And that taking care of them is taking the standard, well, not only that, but is the standard by which you are saved. Yes. Right, which is very different than this just like, oh, believe the right thing. First John speaks a lot to that in the way mm. of saying, you say that you love God, but if you do not love your neighbor, if you yeah. do not love, yeah. you know, people, you do not know God. Same with the book of James. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but going back to this image, yep. so... Uh, there's this line, depart from me, you who are cursed into the fire of eternal torment. And that's in Matthew 25, speaking to the goats. Well, there's those like weeping and gnashing of teeth things. Yes, yes, yes. And the words eternal torment have been really seized to justify this. And this is one of the things that um, is unpacked with this idea that those words didn't have the meaning that they have now in the way that it's been translated when the early church parents had their understanding of uh, apokatastasis because mm-hmm. the word, the phrase was kolasis ionios, kolasis meaning uh, torment. And this had, like, I think one other use in the Bible. You know, uh-huh. you, you don't have a lot of context to really unpack and fully understand what it means. Yeah. And it's a pretty confusing word. And so Aristotle, who was considered an expert of Greek, like the foremost expert, said that if this is to be understood as punishment, it must be understood as the kind of punishment meant for the benefit of the one being punished. Yeah. In other words, restorative as opposed to retributive. Yes. So that's the first part, Colossus. And the second part, Ionios, is this where we get the word eon from. And so this sense of eternity was not attached to this word. Now, we see so many different uses of mm. this word Ionios in the Bible that it gets kind of confusing because heaven is also referred to as Ionios. And so literally what it just means is age. And so there are passages that talk about the age or age to age mm-hmm. and, and various sort of things that you're left wondering, 
does this all have the same meaning or are there different meanings? And if there are different meanings within that word, well, what does it mean in this context? Absolutely. Because we, we have a precedent where we would like to think that the idea of heaven is something that is permanent in some form, eternal outside of time. Sure. And I so, mean, well, even you just, you just touched on a couple of things, like eternal in English means like outside of time. Mm -hmm. It also kind of has this, um, this idea of like forever forward and backward. Yeah, yeah, like it, it, it surrounds all of time. It encompasses all of time. And is somehow beyond time, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this idea of Aeonios is crucial. I, I would just want to oh, say sure. a final thing about that. So um, Augustine is the one who really determined the meaning of this word. And now Augustine was even, he understood that it was not really supposed to mean that, but it was his inclination for whatever reason his understanding of justice that it needed to mean this eternity and so he was really the one who solidified that idea of uh, eternal hell by by ionios which is interesting to think anyway that's all i want to say thank you yeah and that is that is really really critical Okay, so like, what is Jesus doing in hell? Mm -hmm. It says he's preaching to the souls. There's this, there's a, there's something called the Gospel of Peter, which is um, probably not accurate. But again, if it, it was written a long time ago when people had cultural ideas close to Christian beliefs, um, and it, it is in fact the only uh, text that captures the moment of resurrection. Um, all of our canonical texts like catch it post post resurrection, mm -hmm. kind of at least a little bit. Peter had his camera on. He's like, "Oh, there he comes!" Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so there's like this earthquake, and the stone is like moved or something. I think an angel does it, and the angel asks, "Has it been done?" Or like the angel asks, "Like uh, have uh, something to the effect of like, have you preached to those?" who were asleep or below or dead or something. And the cross itself walks out and says, yup. The cross. <laughs> the cross. Uh, which actually aligns with uh, some Roman ideas of whether or not, you know, uh, well, I mean, it gets complicated again because, like, there's one Roman novel that talks about a person who was crucified being buried with their cross. Maybe it just kind of, it's hard to get a nailed corpse off of a that would make bunch sense. of sticks. But also, right, crosses are just left up to let those people rot off them. So that's also kind of gruesome. Whatever. Anyway, so there's this whole idea of, like, what was Jesus doing there? He was preaching. If he was preaching, does that mean that you can be saved from hell? If Jesus is part of God and God is eternal outside of time, mm -hmm. does that mean that G that some part of God is eternally wandering around available in hell as this door to heaven or from hell? That was, that was like, a mind-blowing like thought. Yeah, some sort of wormhole <laughs> from hell to heaven. Um that was this kind of mind-blowing thought of like sure why not yeah <laughs> for me when i think about jesus's death on the cross and he quotes this line from psalm 22 where he says elahi elahi lema sebaktani or my god my god why have you forsaken me why have you abandoned me mm -hmm. and you can take various interpretations of what his purpose was in saying that what it meant but to my understanding it is this literal 
guttural cry of God's self in, in Jesus, God incarnate, is somehow forcibly separated from God's self, which is paradoxical, mm -hmm. but God is above paradoxes. Sure. And so in that, I believe that God entered hell even prior to death. Well, you're assuming that hell means separation from God. Yes, that's the other thing. So for me, if, if we look at heaven as this idea of full connection with God, then hell as the opposite is, is full disconnection from God, this yeah. complete disconnection. And if you then say that Jesus as God entered into disconnection from God, a complete disconnection, yeah. then that, that gap has been bridged. Love that. I tend to not think that separation from God is possible. Yeah. Um, whether it's because Jesus, by experiencing that, somehow bridged it or healed it. But even this concept of like, oh, hell means separation from God, that's not necessarily specified in, you know, in the Bible. Where can I go from your presence, O Lord? If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there, right? Like, That's still all Old Testament. Sure. But, you know, if the concept of hell developed from the concept of Sheol, then what baggage does it take along with it? Yeah, what does that's it really mean? interesting. So, anyway, all, all that to say, like, um, hell... So, th this is also crucial, and it's a small little key. There's a verse in Revelation that says some people, whoever it is, some sinners or whatever, will be um, tortured. I don't know if it says forever, but if it says forever, then it probably just says for an age. Tortured for an age or for a time. Um, in the presence of Jesus or in the presence of God's throne or something. And this was the second major key of like, okay, wait, wait, what? Like, that means in heaven, someone in front of God or in God's throne is going to be tortured. And then I remembered, um, also just reading bits of Revelation, I remembered the, the hymn, uh, Holy, 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 all the saints before thee casting round their golden crowns around the glassy sea bam 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 glassy sea so here we go this is this is where we get a little cuckoo bananas Maybe. here goes the roller coaster <laughs> hands up okay but glassy sea right uh crystal sea is another way to to describe this crystal meaning just kind of like sparkly shiny right hmm. sea is another way uh to say lake mm-hmm Revelation talks about a lake of fire. Hell is talked about as a lake of fire. So if there is this lake of fire, this glassy sea, in heaven, or in God's presence, you know, what happens in that fire? So I think that is hell. I think hell is an experience of being in front of God. Yeah. With our sins. The question then is, what does this age-to-age -age thing mean? And is it eternal? Probably not, right? The only, like, just way to do any sort of punishment, in reality, you know, because, again, right, what... Uh, there's this idea of, like, that I came up with when I was, like, six, that C.S. Lewis also happened to steal from me. <laughs> um, you know, I had this idea of, like, what kind of person, like, if they knew about heaven, would not choose it? Yeah. You know, not choosing heaven is, like deciding to sit in a like mud puddle when you could be at disneyland you know this was six-year-old byron thinking like let's it's a good we, image we can ignore you know corporate disneyland consumers <laughs> all of that stuff that's been com complicated by 
my now jaded self. But evidently C.S. Lewis had this had a similar idea um, where he said, like, it, it doesn't make any sense to sit. I think he also said, like, in a mud puddle, when offered the, uh, like, the, when, when offered, like, a beach vacation type of thing. Boring. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know. As an oceanographer, obviously, I vibed more with beaches. But, yeah. But then the question is, do we know? Is 80 years or whatever on Earth enough time to actually make that decision? Especially if a bunch of lousy Christians are effing it up for everyone and representing mm. a very poor image of Christ. Because of you, my name is blasphemed, blasphemed among the nations. Yeah. So part of the injustice that I feel about this question of, like, who gets sent to hell? Now, Paul kind of, like, encourages us to not really think about this question mm-hmm. in terms of, like, who's saved and who's not. It's not our place. Fundamentally, yeah. it's not our place. And I believe in God's justice. But also, right, like, if... And I'm not saying God has to do it the way I think is most just. I will, at the end, like, defer to God's, you know, way that they decided to make it. But I think I came up with a pretty good system. <laughs> or at least can point out the flaws of the other system of like okay you're given 80 years of a physical like everyone acknowledges it's a pretty like messed up Mm -hmm. existence right is this really do we is this the true amount of free will that is necessary to make an eternal decision you know do we make this decision while we're alive so okay back to this like jesus and hell question and what we do in front of jesus at the end of time do we make this decision? You know, do you, do you have to have your, you know, final come to Jesus moment before you die? The, like, that's a typical interpretation. Like, yeah, you have to believe in Jesus before you die, because once you die, you meet Jesus. Okay, then what? Right? Why can't you choose Jesus at that point? You'd be like, oh shoot, got it wrong. Well, you look like a good option. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, this, and I'm not, again, back to C.S. Lewis, there's this Talmarine or whatever he is, guy, at the end of the last battle, who ends up in heaven, quote-unquote, in front of Aslan, and this guy's walking around, and he's like, ah, what? Like, or, or someone asks, like, how is he here? Something like that. <laughs> who and, let in this guy, huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, I should read these things if I'm going to use them as sources. But, um, you know, I, I read Last Battle, but, like, again, ten years ago. So this idea of... C.S. Lewis says every, every promise made to Tash, the evil Tamarine god, that was kept, is credited to me. Every promise that is kept, even if the promise was made, like, in the name of Tash, was kept. What that was kept was was credited to me. The essence being one of integrity? Yes. Every lie or every, like, promise broken was, even if it was done in my name, is credited to Tash. Because like a rough deal for cash. (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, to be fair, it it does kind of get on this idea of, like, if anything's good, it it belongs to God or comes from God, which I think is, you know, true, I guess. But, like, it's also a bit of a cop-out of, like, oh, so God can't have anything complicated or, like, dark or devious? Like, I don't know. That seems seems a little goody-two-shoes. So, okay, so... This idea of, and I heard this from a um, youth pastor of mine named Ryan Church as well. It, yeah, expressed to me in my like freshman year of college, this idea, you know, what do you do with non-believers? Hypothetically, 
God will be gracious enough to look at someone or, you know, to, to have them look at him, uh, them, God, ugh, God is not a boy. Um, <laughs> and a person who is truly seeking will be like, yes, you, 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 you were what, what I was, was looking, looking for, for this whole time. You know, whether, whether or not they knew God's name was Jesus or Yahweh or whatever, like to see God and then choose. There's two judgments that are happening, right? God has judged us, mm-hmm. but the Bible says over and over, God has judged us good, very good. God has already chosen us. The only judgment left to happen is our judgment of God. We judge God when we die. And by judge, I mean we choose. Yeah. And back to C.S. Lewis, when we face God, what choice do we have? And this is this is the fatal flaw of Apocatastasis. This is one of the reasons it was like condemned as heretical, non-orthodox. I don't know if Apocatastasis is has actually been condemned as a heresy or whether or not it just remains a theologomenon, which is like a Bible fan theory. Um, or a chewy candy that they <laughs> invented by the church. Never mind. <laughs> anyway. Um, okay, so it, it's this free will aspect, uh, which actually, from you know, from reading those early uh, documents, like the idea... House of, of Orange was really against free will. Yeah, seriously. It was like... You have no choice in the matter as to whether of whether or not God chooses. Like, you are unable to choose God. Um, we don't like the orange. Not really. Um, down with the Cheeto King. <laughs> anyway. Um, okay, so this idea of, like, once you face God, and, and this is a question I've had with, with you and Hen of, like, mm-hmm. what is real free will? Yeah. To look ultimate truth in the face, can you actually say no to that? So is that perfect free will or not perfect free will? Yeah. You know, if you can't say no to God, then that's not free will, I think. But if, but I think you actually technically can say no to God, even in full face. And the evidence for this is Lucifer, right? Lucifer was there with God. And, and this, this, makes a hu- this throws a huge wrench into the question of, like, can we sin in heaven? Um, you know, Lucifer was there in God's presence, if God's presence equals heaven. Um... Lucifer was right there and said fuck you to God probably the Hebrew words or you know something else for sure fuck was to know sure okay but like but okay and this gets into a a, like weird question about sin is what did what did Lucifer actually do Mm. Lucifer didn't say screw you to God Lucifer said I want to be like God this is also the sin of Adam and Eve to be like God and yet this is also the thing we are called to do, to be like God. So there's kind of a weird double standard that I'm just going to acknowledge. Now, I think it is to be like God on God's terms, which is like a little weird. But what is this balance of wanting to be like God that is sinful in some instances and like not sinful, in fact, the goal in others? I think you can be like God in the sense of being of God like, cut from the same cloth, like, that you emulate and that you live into the nature of God, that whatever God's spirit as as love and wholeness, unity, reconciliation, that, that as you enter into that spirit, you are becoming like God, is a very different thing to me than this desire to say, no, I want to subvert your rulership. That you, like, the essence of, of God being that which is perfect and therefore 
orchestrating and holding all things to say, no, I want to step outside of that because I want to be on equal terms with you. Yeah, that's very well said and it's very compelling. But... But, <laughs> it, I mean, it, it doesn't... And I, you're not saying that it does resolve all the issues, but I, I don't think it resolves all the issues. Because then you get this divine command theory of like, oh, God just gets to define all the rules? Like, I guess. <laughs> okay, anyway, back to apocatastasis and stuff. Okay, so the idea is when you look at God, then you have this chance to choose God. And so then you kind of get this question of what is the point of having lived here on Earth if we're all just going to die and face God and automatically, I guess, choose God? Yeah. Two issues here. One is that we have sinned, right? And maybe, you know, we would sin in heaven if God just placed us there in the same way that Lucifer did. Now, I think we are much less likely to sin once we know what it's like to sin and then be forgiven of that. So I think forgiveness is actually the entire point of this creation. More than that, this gets to uh, the role of humanity vis-a-vis -vis Satan. I'll, I'll get there. It's a it's a fun idea. So we will come before God, but we will be covered. We will be shit drenched in sin. Oof. And God will say, it's okay. You want a, you want a bath? <laughs> sure, you want a bath, whatever. Uh, like, you know, there's this, yeah, okay. God will say, <laughs> it's okay. Then again, it is up to us to say, okay. Right, to receive that grace. Mm -hmm. Right. This this comes from a friend of mine named James Faley, who, you know, I, I had this assumption that like, you know, like the that we'd all be like the woman caught in adultery or the, the woman whose sins were forgiven, right? You know, like thank you, thank you, thank you. Like this is all I ever wanted. And maybe some people will be. But there's also another option. Mm -hmm. The other option is to say, no, 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 no way. I am nowhere near worthy enough. Yeah. I am so bad. Like, you don't know what I've done. Like, I don't deserve grace. You can't just forgive me that easily, right? Like, what did Adam and Eve do? They hid. They yeah. covered themselves. They were ashamed. They were ashamed. <clears throat> I think hell, the burning fire of hell, is nothing less than the intensity of our own struggle to actually give up our shame to God and to accept that full grace. Yeah, that's interesting. Right? What is burned away? It's not our sin. That stuff's washed away hmm. by the blood of Jesus Christ. What is burned away, the only reason anything hurts is because we are holding on yeah. through sheer tenacious pride you know, maybe even, like, trying to save God, you know, oh, like, I don't want to get your fingernails dirty or whatever. <laughs> like, this very well-intentioned, perhaps, possibly, uh, this idea of, like, no, I'm not worthy. You know, it's difficult to accept a compliment, nonetheless, to, like, be forgiven of something. I think we've all experienced that. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's what hell is. Yeah. Right? And if it takes you an age to finally say, God, you're right, I actually do want you, and I don't want to hold on to this garbage anymore, please burn away the garbage, right? A refining fire. This is the point of justice.
this is the point of hell. This is the point of heaven. This is the point of everything. <laughs> Forgiveness and grace and justice. And the reason this is justice, right? You know, a, a, a person who, you know, has a different view of justice but might be like, oh, no, no, like, that just means that, like, you get away with it. No, you do not. <laughs> like, you burn through it. Yeah. In a, potentially in, like, a purgatorial kind of way. Um, I was yeah. hearing a story about healing circles. This is a practice that has been tried and you know um, experienced through many cultures mm. but in the modern u.s uh retributive model it's not something that has been practiced too much on a legal level mm. in seattle there's been some experimentation in the past and not surely not just seattle but seattle has been in some way, ways uh leading the charge mm. about bringing this form of healing as opposed to this judgmental retributive eye for an eye or more model mm. and um, in this practice in some of the the case studies the original examples these kids who have done something and are now being held accountable mm -hmm. for their actions in beloved community yeah so people who know them as well as other members of the community as well as even potentially if the victim is wanting to be at the table mm -hmm. they can be at the table if not they'll have a representative there to hold their story and hold the place there yeah and i was i was hearing the story from from a guy and he was he who was part of part of this initiative and he was sharing that uh, joe cotton is his name mm -hmm. um and he was sharing that this this kid, one of these kids, was saying, "Okay, I'm done. Just you know, throw me away, lock me away, because that would be easier." Mm. And the idea is that healing circles are not just this woo-woo, yeah, you know, kumbaya, and we're just gonna absolve all accountability. Quite the opposite. It's it's holding you accountable. Yes. Ultimate accountability. And that burns. Absolutely. But that is the only way to heal. Mm -hmm. You you throw someone away in a cage, they don't heal from whatever it is that they did. Frankly, it entirely ignores all of the context leading up to why they did whatever they did. Yeah. And so if you really want to have a healed community and healed individuals, yeah. you have to hold them accountable in a way that is restorative to heal them. And so this idea of a lake of fire as being uh, the the reckoning, mm -hmm. where one must reckon with oneself, the reality of one's actions, and therefore, because yeah. to me, I don't think you can fully understand the grace of God until you fully understand the intensity of your actions. Yes, absolutely. And I think like, that's an yeah. important part. Yeah, we'll we'll look at God, and God will be like, "Here's every good thing you ever did, and I loved it so much." And I think that intensity of like love will also bowl us over. Yeah. But also we will know exactly. Those are the treasures in sin. heaven. Yeah. And we will know exactly how sinful we were and exactly how much it hurt. Yeah. How much it hurt ourselves, how much it hurt other people, how much it hurt God. Mm. And that is real. Like that is, uh, like it, and to be forgiven of that is so much more life-changing, right? The story of, of Les Miserables and Jean Valjean. Yeah. You know, he steals this silver. He's a jaded man from prison. 
prison helped him? No, it did not. 20 years of unjust, you know, prison labor. What actually helped him? It's this priest who forgave him and gifted him this silver that he stole. Mm-hmm. And what does he say? The priest says, I have bought your soul for God, which is like an interesting kind of <laughs> turn. Um, but you must use this precious silver to become a better man, right? Like it's, it, it's this ab- absurd, offensive generosity. Mm-hmm. That is true justice. Yeah. Um, anyway, okay, so then we'll look, we'll look God in the face and be like, okay, fine, I get it, thank you. And then we'll actually know what heaven is. Yeah. You know, it's not like, oh, you were good enough, you got enough points to get into heaven. You will know full context of like what it means to have been forgiven of, you know, to be forgiven of much. So anyway, then I think this is this is where Satan comes back in. Um, I think we also have free will in heaven. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you brought up this moldy hot dog. <laughs> That was outside. We, we should share that image. So, sure. Um, the idea of free will in heaven is kind of a hard thing to wrap your mind around in the sense of like, oh, well, can you just leave? And, you know, is it not the final end-all, be-all, bliss, yeah. whatever? What are the points of the gates? What, what's the point of the gates in heaven? Is it to keep stuff in, out, people in, whatever? And this image that I, um, a friend... Josh Small shared with me. Um, no small thing. No small, no small Josh. And the image goes that you are in the rain, you're walking up, and you are about to enter into this beautiful mansion. You see the lights on. There's this huge party going on, this banquet, just the best food that you could possibly imagine. And you're about to step in, and you turn. And you see in the corner of your eye, in the gutter, this gross, moldy, wet hot dog. Rat pooped on. Just so, yeah, just totally, <laughs> you know, probably mold and whatever. Yep. Um, and you could go into this banquet, or you could technically <laughs> reach down and pick up that moldy hot dog and eat it. That is always an option. It is technically an option. And hopefully it's clear that every single person would choose <laughs> to go inside the party. Yeah. The idea there being that there can still be this choice, but the, it, but the temptation is gone. Yeah. That whatever it was that was tempting you to something can be gone and the choice still remains. Yes. So I think that, that like saves the that image kind of... Maybe not that specific image, but that, that <laughs> concept saves the whole free will aspect of uh, ultimate hopeful universal reconciliation. So anyway, here's the thing. I think that God also wants to save Lucifer, to mm-hmm. save all the demons and all that stuff. Um, and I think the way that God's going to go about doing it is by using us, in, us as an example. Hmm. right? That the point of this life is to have lived forgiveness and so then because like the devil isn't a human and uh, is probably thinking in different ways like for god to then like have this case study for satan to be like hey i I will take you back 
like, I forgive you. Look, all of these people did it. I, I don't know. I, that idea is so beautiful. Good, I'm glad you thought so, because I, I feel like I wasn't articulating it No, well. to me, when I hear you say that, we could even potentially think about all of our existence that we've ever known was all created and done because of how deep God's love was for one being. Yeah. That for Lucifer, for Satan, that God's love was so deep. I'm sure a lot of evangelicals would hate this idea so much, but that... Yep. That all of creation and humanity was made, and and in it, more diversity, more beauty, more love, that, it, that is more... preserved. Yeah. And so it's not like it has, you know, we're just going to blip away, but um, that all of that was done as an act of love for this other being. To yeah. me, that idea is really remarkably beautiful. Like, I, what a gift. Yeah, I think it's entirely possible. Um, anyway, that that's about as heretical as I get on this <laughs> I've also got this fun idea of theosis. I didn't come up with that word. There's another ancient Greek word that means like union with God, uh, but I'll save that for another time. Are there other aspects of... Yeah, I mean, there... so there's a verse that says like, for it is given to man once to die and thence to judgment. Well, okay, does that mean that this judgment thing happens after death? Right, you know, if how, does if and how might reincarnation pop into this kind of equation? I, I don't think it does, but it very well could, right? I had this really wild conversation with my dad the other day and my younger brother and my brother, older brother and his wife, that they all have like these kind of stories that I've never heard about of like past life memories. And I don't think there's any problem with uh, reincarnation within a Christian circle it does interesting things to one's personal sense of identity potentially you know unless you are just kind of the same person but anyway i, I won't i won't go off on a tangent of, of reincarnation but christian re reincarnation could be a theme for another week it could be anyway so hopeful ultimate by the end universal that actually everyone and everything will be reconciled that is what i believe this is a schnazzy form of universalism because it doesn't get rid of the concept of hell in fact i think frankly it intensifies and actually gives some amount of meaning to the concept of hell yeah hell currently i mean currently whatever in the typical understanding is thoroughly meaningless it's not particularly well thought out no it's not it's this sense of well we understand to some degree justice we crave justice when we've been hurt we want things to be made right yeah seriously we don't know what that looks like yeah. and so we think well hey that person should suffer how i suffered as opposed to the way that i've suffered should be redeemed and healed yeah in relationship with that person yeah yeah i mean we all have this kind of like sense of fairness that's what c.s lewis starts mere christianity yeah with in regards to this, like, appeal to your universal morality or objective morality. I think it's not the most complete argument, but... Yeah. I mean, the, the, the way prison and jail and that kind of 
retributive justice works also serves to create you know the bad guys mm-hmm. image which i think is so counter to how jesus operates absolutely i think the i think the idea of universal reconciliation is pretty watertight you know even down to the greek words of like oh eternal punishment there's literally i mean if you if you yes. if you get it down to that level and that is if you want to preserve this idea of like this conservative idea of hell like there's something wrong with you <laughs> um, i mean not that spiritual realities are a way that they are because we want them to be or we don't want them to be but if you like i don't know like if you're fighting to hold on to such a if you relish the idea of eternal suffering yes yeah yeah you know of others like there's something morally wrong with that you i believe that your humanity is broken yeah is lessened at least that well, no, that it, it's broken. It's fundamentally broken. That, that your understanding of humanity yeah. is limited to the connection that you have with other people and the recognition of one shared humanity. And I that feel like... If you put that bar anywhere, if you say even just one person sure. deserves eternal damnation, then you are essentially pulling that definition out onto the entirety of humanity and saying that you deserve it too. Like... We can't, we can't separate humanity in that way, yeah. in my mind. And the important thing about what you're saying, Byron, is that first word of hopeful. That you are yes. not claiming to have some uh, pie-in-the-sky knowledge that knows what is to come. But it is your posture of hope. Yeah. And that is all that you can do in this life. Well, and what does it do to my life, right? Like, again, this was kind of... This is the question of Jesus' globby body. This is the question of any kind of belief. You know, this classic thing of like, even if Christianity were false, I would remain loyal to the tenets of Christianity because it makes the world a better place. It makes me a better person. You know, like, what does this belief do to the way that I operate in the world? It can only make me more gracious and more loving Mm -hmm. and more Christ-like. You know, whereas there are like positive takeaways from well, are there i don't know the, the alternative is to live in fear or like dogmatism or judgment or i don't know anyway i, don't, I mean not that i want to judge the idea of people who believe in eternal conscious torment but don't judge judging i'm not judging judging paradox of tolerance there i guess yeah anyway yeah i don't know how to wrap this up in a way that's any more beautiful than to just like think about what it looks like to be truly forgiven of everything you know so so the benefit we get to live with as people who have already accepted this reality is that like you know we don't go through hell arguably right mm-hmm. we i go through my own emotional hell every time i confess you know i think that's point that's part of the point of the this life prepares you for a posture of humility to receive the accountability necessary for healing. Yes. Yeah. You know, just because I, you know, believe in God, am I going to have, you know, am I going to sail through the full revelation of all my sins? No. (laughs) That's going to burn like hell. Yeah. So to speak. But will I be much more able to accept it? I think so. Absolutely. Yeah. 
this this training ground for forgiveness. And you don't have to be afraid of it. No, absolutely not. There is no reason to be afraid of that. You can recognize it as a blessing because as terrifying as it sounds and as painful as it will be, it is a blessing. It is, as Aristotle defined a punishment, meant for the benefit of the one being punished. Amen. Love it. Thanks for joining us. This is Barefoot Timaeus. Hope you have a lovely... I'm going to call it a morning. I'm going to assume you're in the morning. Yeah, good assumption. (laughs) Good morning. Good morning. And goodbye. Goodbye.